Hello, everybody. Recording live from somewhere. Welcome to the Sickle Cycle Podcast, a monthly conversation about sickle cell disease. I'm your host, Charlotte Curtis. This is our February episode. We are so excited to have Miss Prince on, who is the co-founder of Sickle Cell Association of Houston. And you co-founded this organization with your daughter. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Yes. Okay. Well, that's great. And so I'm so excited to have you on just because of all the advocacy work that you have been doing within Houston. So I wanted to start and to what's your connection to sickle cell disease? Thank you for having me. And I want to say as well, too, it's an honor to be here and to be able to have this conversation with you. So my connection to sickle cell disease is that I am the mother of two daughters, um, one of which, um, who is 29 years old, um, lives with sickle cell disease. And um, that has been our family's connection and our family's journey um, that we found it necessary to really um, educate uh, those around us outside of our families um, <clears throat> because we realized not a lot of people really understood sickle cell. There's so many complexities surrounding the disease, but as mm-hmm. a parent, mm-hmm. how was the education for you during that time? I know you mentioned you have a 29-year-old daughter with sickle cell disease, so let's go back 29 years ago. Yes. And when you first found out, <laughs> ah! you know, you had a child that had sickle cell disease, did you know that you had the trait? So I actually found out um, that I had sickle cell trait through an elementary school health fair. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And um, they, they educated my mom about what sickle cell trait was um, to the best of their ability at the time. And I want to say I may have been in about the second grade or so. I don't think they do that anymore. <laughs> uh, but um, so um, I, I did know I had the trait. However, um, I did not know at the time Quinesia's father was also a trait carrier. And as a very young mom, I, I was a teen mom in the 90s. Um, as a very young mom, you just don't think to ask those sorts of things. I think mm-hmm. um, at that time, we were just sort of discovering um, HIV and, and AIDS and all of that was going on in the early, in, you know, 90, 91. Um, so that was pretty much, you know, all you heard a lot about. Um, I can remember uh, where I grew up, a few kids who had sickle cell disease and um, watching their life and um, watching how they were absent from school. And so um, I remember just having those visuals and having that narrative in my head. Um, so when I learned that I had a child with sickle cell disease. That's all I could think of. Mm. And naturally, um, I was um, very scared and nervous and um, trying to figure out, you know, who I am and and, and what this life is going to look like. And um, I just wanted to make sure that my family um, was educated about it. I remember when I received the notice and I remember... Um, going to her business with her pediatrician and them talking to me about her. Um, at the time, 
they had not, it wasn't decisive as to whether she had sickle cell SS or beta thalassemia. So they probably toggled between the two for, I think, maybe the first two or three years of her life. Oh, wow. Before they really said, oh, no, she has SS. So a lot of the science that we see today, it it wasn't there um, in the 90s. Um, But I remember um, in the very beginning, I remember going to the library and checking out books and anything that I could find to learn about sickle cell disease. And what I would do was before every visit, I would prepare a list of questions that I would ask the doctors and have them explain it to me in a way that I could understand it. And so that, um, for me, um, it was important for me to be as educated as I possibly could so that I was always able to make the best possible decision for someone that I'm now responsible for. So, and that's what prompted you to start the Sickle Cell Association of Houston. So here in Houston, Houston had always had this rich um, staple. Um, It was known as the Sickle Cell Association of the Texas Gulf Coast. And this organization was actually founded by our late Congresswoman Barbara Jordan and some colleagues. And their initial goal was to, of course, raise awareness and educate the community about sickle cell disease. However, over time and many years, this organization just kind of blossomed into a true one-stop, truly comprehensive community-based organization. Uh, I must have been around 25 or 26. I remember I wanted to get involved in, and I remember talking myself out of it. And I remember saying, no one's going to take you serious because you're just 25. And um, then the thought, you know, kind of goes out of your mind and you start doing other things. And then around 36, it hit me again to start something. And then we uh, ended up relocating to a different city. We ended up uh, relocating to Dallas. And so it was like, okay, can't do that now. So ironically, um, we moved back to Houston eight years later. Um, in 2014, and at that time, um, Quinesia, the old, the, my oldest daughter who has sickle cell disease, she was experiencing a series of crises, and um, she was trying to reacclimate herself back to the city of Houston because the city had grown so much. The first thing in our heads was, we'll just go to the sickle cell. Association of the Texas Gulf Coast. They can surely direct you and, you know, have this network. Well, it was then that we found out that it was gone. It had um, dissolved. And so um, then Quinesia starts uh, experiencing a series of crises that were very different from what she had experienced before. And she, um, of course, was going to the emergency room And um, there was one, the last time that she went, because she kept telling them that something was very much off about these particular crises that she was having. It was not the same typical crisis. And so finally, the last time that she went, and because she had 
gone already three times within the same week. You already know this whole thing about labeling, how that comes up. So that comes up. And then she finally says, you know, listen, do not give me any pain medication because something is wrong. And of course, they're going to stick to their guidelines and they're going to do follow protocol. We're going to stabilize and release. And so it wasn't until she said this, and this is what really started our wheels turning um, as a family. She said, you know what? I'm going to allow you to discharge me. I'm going to wait 30 minutes. I'm going to exit the building. I'm going to wait 30 minutes. I'm going to come back and readmit under same diagnosis in less than 30 days. And your hospital is going to be penalized. And it wasn't until she used that terminology, eyebrows raised, and they were more like, okay, who's this person that knows this terminology and understand their rights. Fortunately and unfortunately, she had to go there to get what she asked for the first time, which was a simple diagnostic test that would have been able to identify the problem early on. And lo and behold, she had blood clots in her leg. Um, and so, um, she is a person, my daughter is, uh, my oldest daughter has a personality. It's very hard to make her angry. She's very, you know, laid back, but she was very angry in her own quiet way. And she said, you know, this is so wrong on so many levels. And, oh, one of the most important things I want to talk about too is during this time, they considered the diagnostic test elective. They didn't find, they didn't feel or find that it was medically necessary. So we had to pay, I would never forget this dollar amount, $983, only for them to order the wrong test without contrast. Their error, they made us pay the fee again. And that's when she was just sort of like, you know, this is so wrong, mom, on so many levels, you know, just think about people who don't have funds readily available like that to find that something is wrong. You know, I could have easily died um, had I not spoken up. And so that, the, re- the reason why we started um, Sickle Cell Association of Houston. You didn't just, you and your daughter just didn't say, you know what, this is the hand that I'm dealt. You actually thought about a way to be the change that you wish to see. Um, which is starting this organization, providing services to the community. Yeah. And it's interesting that when we first started um, this journey, money never crossed my mind. I know you need money, but it never crossed my mind because in, for me, information is free. And so if I can give out information in a way that people can understand, then I can do that. And Quinesia and I, we talked about this um, when we first started. We also wanted to make sure we were not running an organization that was filled with fluff. If it didn't make impact or if it wasn't going to be impactful, we we decided that we would not do it and we will not do it. And so um, I remember when we first started, um, we solely focused on education, raising awareness. I think in that first year, we probably did maybe almost 200 events. 
within the first, I'm going to say within the first year and a half, we probably covered 200 events across the city, um, just raising awareness for sickle cell disease. Um, one of the first things we did, and, and I want to share this with, with you and your audience, is that um, when you're talking about raising awareness, I want people to be very clear about what it is they're doing and understanding, um, really understanding sickle cell and being able to explain sickle cell to the T. So if anyone asks you things like, well, what is hemoglobin? You can explain that so clearly that, you know, a, a, a six-year-old or a seven-year-old can understand it. And also, when you go into a place of where you've made a decision that you want to raise awareness, I want people to start strategizing and developing strategy around how to mobilize that. Because one of the ways that we were able to cover so much ground in such a small amount of time, we actually had ambassadors who were just as passionate about sickle cell disease as we were. For a lot of individuals, they want to support and advocate for sickle cell, mm-hmm. want to advocate for the sickle cell community, but mm-hmm. they don't know where to start. That's so right. you mentioned an ambassador's program. Are there any other recommendations that you would have for those individuals that want to get involved in the community? Yeah. Understand that all people really need is your time. You don't have to be in a specific city or a specific state to advocate. Because I can tell you when we um, were working um, on the legislation and we were phone banking, We had people from the East Coast to the West Coast making phone calls for Texas. So, you know, you know, everyone has a script. Everyone becomes familiar with what it is they're asking people to vote for. And, you know, at the end of it, we had a a call and, you know, I said, do you all realize what you all just did? What you just did was advocacy. And I think people think advocacy is this big, grandiose thing. Advocacy is just opening your mouth and just saying, this is what I need you to hear. When you think about all the other aspects to mobilizing, to advocate, one of the things that you have excelled at is legislation. So can you tell me more about the work (laughs) that you have done in terms of legislation? Um, we understood the climate as well of uh, the state of Texas. We, under- we understand um, the political climate. When it comes to mobilizing and having that support and creating your tribe um, to help you accomplish the goals that you want to accomplish in any legislation that you want to do, make sure those folks are just as educated and just as passionate um, as you are. Um, so one of the... One of the key pieces of legislation was that um, Texas now recognizes sickle cell disease in the month of September. Although September is National Sickle Cell Awareness Month, what people didn't know is that your state has to adopt that as well. So that was one of that was the reasoning behind. Um, the resolution establishing, and that lasts for 10 years, and then it can be, um, you know, renewed. And then the second thing we wanted to do was, of course, raise awareness and mobilize the awareness, did a license plate here in the state of Texas. 
Now, the sec, the, there's a component to that. We understood the importance of being able to support community-based organizations and sometimes the lack of funding in order to get things done. So what happens is when folks purchase these license plates, the money goes to a trust. And um, on an annual basis, I believe beginning this year, community-based organizations can apply for grants or scholarships to support their initiatives, their community initiatives. Um, and we're still working on that second piece. And then um, one of the most important pieces I'm so excited about um, was um, the ability to add sickle cell disease to the opiate exception. So it was important for us to make sure that our people were not suffering in silence. Um, but I do want I do want to be add and I want to make clear the particular bill that we put forward, it passed the House unanimous. However, when it got to the Senate here in Texas, it crashed and burned. There were other bills similar to what we put forward that were looking like they were going to pass. So when our bill crashed and burned, we just took the same verbiage from our bill that covered sickle cell disease, and we added that to a bill, a very similar bill, that included cancer patients and hospice patients. So we added sickle cell disease patients to that. So what happens is when sickle cell disease patients go to um, get their prescriptions, they were no longer flagged. And that's interesting that you thought about the strategy for that, right? That you yes. implemented a way to say, okay, if our bill will not get passed, that's fine. There's we a will will. find a way. There's a way. Right. Exactly. <laughs> we will find a way. We will exactly. Find a way. What were the steps that you took to even work with congressional staffers and also the legislative team within Texas? Mm -hmm. So when we when when we first started, um, we, when we made up our minds in 2014, this is what we were going to do. In 2015, as I stated earlier, we were all over the city. I was no stranger to uh, leadership here in the city of Houston. And so it's important to be able to um, not only tell a story, give them the facts down to the zip code. And um, when you can bring, bring it home to your leaders, they're more likely to listen to you. They're more likely to get involved. And so the very first thing that we did was we established relationships. Relationships are key. And not all the time are you going to have um, meetings directly with, um, with those individuals. Because your real best friend, <laughs> your real best friend in all honesty is their staffers. That's where the relationship happens. And so it's very important that you have a, a, a really good, good rapport with them, a very positive rapport with them. You have to make sure that you're able to be flexible, um, you know, when things aren't looking like they're going to go your way. And understand that if you don't win today, you have tomorrow and you have another legislative session. I don't even think half those people even knew my name. They just knew that I was the sickle cell lady. <laughs> <laughs> and Rep Johnson, yes, Rep Johnson to this day, Till this day, he does not let me live it down 
And he, I never go to these neighborhood meetings. But it was this one day I had this little, I don't know, something just told me to go to this meeting. I've never gone in the entire the few years that I had been there and something just told me to go to this meeting. So I went to peep my head in. And as I went to peep my head in, he was walking out and I looked at him and he looked at me and I was like, what's your name? And, you know, and we got to talking and he was actually campaigning. I, I remember saying, what do you know about sickle cell? <laughs> and what he thought he knew about sickle cell as well, he didn't know. And the more he learned the more passionate he became about it. In the state of Texas, how many people have sickle cell disease and how many people have the trait? So it's estimated um, in the state of Texas that there's nearly uh, a little bit over 9,000, which accounts for nearly 10% of the U.S.'s popu uh, population. Texas is, is definitely a market that requires a lot of education, not just patient education. Um, the physician community really needs to be educated deeply around sickle cell disease. But I do strongly believe that they should know more than a paragraph or two about <laughs> sickle cell disease, um, its medical manifestations. I do think they need to um, update these antiquated um, pain policy um, processes that many hospitals have across the nation. I do believe that sickle cell disease should have at least a universal protocol that says this, that I believe every hospital should um, be required to do. A sickle cell patient comes in with pain crisis, certain things need to happen um, within 30-minute increments, I believe. Yeah, I know you discussed some of the challenges um, that the sickle cell community face, particularly within the medical community. And how mm -hmm. do you think we can essentially overcome those challenges in the future? I know you talked about mobilizing legislation, but is there anything else that you would like to add? Absolutely, communication. So my board consists, 50% of my board has sickle cell disease. And not one program initiative, project, workshop that you all see, it doesn't happen without them, without their input. Now, what I'm about to say about communication, communication is key. My daughter, or one of the ways I trained her to be when she's going into the emergency room and communicating with physicians and with these triage folks, please do not go in the emergency room and say, oh, I'm here because my leg is hurting. Don't do that because you'll sit there 25 hours because you're not priority. It's not life-threatening. But if you can go in there and you can say, my name is so-and-so, I live with sickle cell disease, I have a history of TIAs, I want you to be as descriptive as you possibly can and refer them to the chart, to your chart of the day that you did receive very good treatment and a pain protocol that worked very well. Refer them to that day. That way it takes the guesswork out of 
them saying, I'm going to try this first when you already know it's not going to work. No, that's extremely important. And even for myself, when I go to, uh, to the doctor's office, I have to write down questions beforehand Mm -hmm. because I will forget what my question was. Yes. When I go to the doctor's office and then after I leave there, I'm like, oh, I have all these questions. And it's like, no, that was my opportunity to get the answers that I wanted. Yes. And I would like to see see many more um, warriors participate in clinical trials and studies. Um, You know, oftentimes we hear, you know, people talk about the funding that goes into things like AIDS and HIV, cystic fibrosis and things like that. And all the therapies that are available. But you have to remember that lots of people participate um, Mm -hmm. in the development um, of uh, many therapies. Remember when Houston had Hurricane Harvey? Yes. Um, Well, we had a lot of folks who were, um, you know, who lost everything. And so we had patients who... Um, you know, because of the stress of everything that was going on, who went into crisis, could not reach their hematologist because their hematologist is probably affected as well. Clinics were closed. Um, but then when you have folks who have not just the hematologist, but they have other physicians who are part of their team and they were needing scripts, their physicians could write them a script at least for 10 days. And that's another thing that I want warriors to be aware of during catastrophes and during disasters. There are certain exceptions around your pain medications that can be made. And speaking of interesting times, we are living through Ah, (laughs) (laughs) COVID-19. And we have all been challenged and balancing things in a different new normal kind of space. What have you seen um, from sickle cell community in reference to COVID-19? Main priority right now is to make sure the sickle cell community um, here in the greater Houston area has uh, uh, access to the vaccine for those who want to take the vaccine. We had a little hiccup Last week uh, here in Houston, um, they did a mega event um, for the COVID vaccine. And um, we had a few um, sickle cell patients who are literally chasing down the vaccine. Um, but, you know, their physician offices uh, doesn't have the vaccine. And so they're kind of all over the place trying to find out who's administering the vaccine. Um, so we're um, working a collaborative project with the Houston Health Department, um, specifically for sickle cell disease, to make sure they have access to the vaccine um, this week. Um, the one thing I noticed very early on, and it wasn't just with sickle cell, it was with all of us, but um, of course the anxieties around COVID-19 and um, the implications of COVID-19, should you contract COVID-19 with sickle cell disease, um, how to best protect yourselves. Um, So um, we hit the gate um, running um, by providing um, COVID-19 relief kits for the community. Um, And in those kits, we had things like um, alcohol, um, alcohol wipes, sanitizers, um, non-perishable items, um, masks, gloves. Um, we had some of the things that um, you, that were very hard to find. 
we were fortunate enough to um, be able to get a hold of a lot of those things. And that's partly due to relationships. I can't stress enough how important having relationships are in your communities and making sure people know you in the community. And I want to thank, you know, uh, folks like, you know, SCDAA, um, Global Blood Therapeutics and, uh, you know, Emmaus, who they were just like, you know, what do you all need? We are here for you. And when we say we are, you know, here for the community, it had it had absolutely nothing to do with a drug or a therapy. It was all about how can we help the community. And so I'm thankful for those those folks who stepped who stepped up um, when they really didn't have to. And I don't know if you've had an opportunity to um, look at um, one of the registries that I believe when COVID-19 first started, they did a, um, I guess they were doing like a, a, did a survey about the outcome or the outputs of um, what was happening between um, the sickle cell disease community and, 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 and those who contracted COVID-19. Um, but it was the University of the College of Medicine in Wisconsin. And um, they actually published that I think they did it between the two-month phase between March and May, where they had 178 uh, individuals with sickle cell disease um, contracted COVID-19 with 69% of the patients having to be hospitalized and about 18, 19% were actually uh, placed in ICU and 13, uh, not 13%, it was a lower number, but like five or seven, 7%, 7%, um, you know, transitioned. So um, I'm just always concerned about the community um, because, you know, sometimes people with sickle cell disease um, are not not only living with the disease itself, but um, also may have other things going on that they're completely not aware of, um, such as hypertension or you know um, some other comorbidity that um, can play a part in this. And so I'm just always concerned um, as to whether or not individuals in the community um, are able to make a very well-informed decision, especially if you don't or are not aware of what may be going on with you. It's interesting to understand the COVID-19 impacts within the sickle cell community, but then it's also interesting to understand any impacts that you have, right, mm-hmm. that goes on with your body. Yeah. I always try to figure out, is this sickle cell related or how yeah. can I figure yeah. out if it is? Right. And so for that, it's part of as you mentioned, the advocacy part, right? The awareness, the communication. Mm -hmm. But as we think about, you know, moving forward, what does advocacy really mean to you? And how do you think this translates to the sickle cell community in particular? Mm -hmm. I look at advocacy like this as a way that you can take a blank canvas and create what you want. You can create the narrative that you want to have. You can put a face on a disease um, like sickle cell disease um, that didn't have a voice, that didn't have a face, that just always seemed to be this invincible thing. 
And it is very important that, to, to me, that you guys are not just seen, but heard. It is important to me with respect to therapeutic companies that they are not stripping, um, exploiting, um, and withdrawing for the com- from the community and not pouring back in. And when I say pour back in, I mean in, in an impactful way. You know, we talk about systemic changes. These companies have power. And these companies have power and influence to help us in that fight. And while I am appreciative of, you know, some of the community sponsorships, it's time for us to do some real work. When I think of advocacy, that is what I think of. And I think that everybody is an advocate in your own way. And I want to challenge the community to figure out a way that we can come together as a collective and say, this is what we want, this is what we demand, and how do we get there? with the help of a lot of our community partners for some real change and not saying that there hasn't been real change, but for some change um, on things that we are tired of being tired about. Yes, I totally agree. And Miss Tanya Prince, you have been wonderful. I thank Thank you you. for joining us on the Sickle Cycle podcast. You're welcome. I am so excited to see what the Sickle Cell Association of Houston continues to do in 2021 in terms of their services, providing transportation, education and engagement, and also on the legislation front. That's right. That's what we're here for. That's what we're supposed to do. It's our responsibility to one another, to stick together for the common good and the goal of the community at large. And that's sickle cell disease. Thank you for listening to the Sickle Cycle Podcast.